Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Keys for SLPs for this episode, Keys to Keeping Options Open, Changing Directions, and Starting a Private Practice. Before we get started, here are some logistics. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs podcast and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Hyunju Chung receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. She's the owner of Chung Speech and Swallowing Therapy and works as a PRN SLP in hospitals. She is a member of ASHA Special Interest Groups 3 and 13. And now, here's a little bit about our guest today, Dr. Hyunju Chung. Hyunju earned her MA and PhD in speech pathology from Kent State University and MA in linguistics from Michigan State University. Hyunju graduated from Yonsei University in Korea with a BA in education before coming to the United States. Last year, she founded Chung Speech and Swallowing Therapy based in Carrollton, Texas. Prior to starting her private practice, she worked as an SLP for 16 years in various settings, including acute rehab hospitals and adult and pediatric outpatient clinics. In addition to running her business as a sole proprietor, she works as a PRN speech pathologist at Medical City Dallas Hospital and Life Care Hospital of Plano. In her private practice, she specializes in dysphagia, apraxia, aphasia, and dysarthria, as well as Parkinson's speech and voice. Her future goal is to grow her private practice and thrive with clients and their families via evidence-based practice and linguistic and cultural considerations for best clinical outcomes. Welcome, Hyunju. We are so happy to have you on Keys for SLPs to talk about your journey that led you to open a private practice and the practical steps that you took to establish your business. 
Hi, Mary Beth. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for inviting me to today's talk. I'm very excited. I'm very excited to have you too. Thank you for being here. It's been fun to work with you to prepare for this podcast today. So before we get started about establishing a private practice, tell us about your journey to become a speech language pathologist. Well, when I first came to the United States, I was not a speech pathologist. I actually studied in education in Korea and I came to the U.S. to study linguistics. And then toward the end of the program, as a master's program, I learned that there's a field called speech language pathologist. And then I learned, okay, that's the area that I should be in to do what I like to do. Oh, that's great. Who told you about speech language pathology or how did you learn about it? I was always interested in learning languages and linguistics. But I had a friend in the same department at the same university. She was actually interested in changing her major from linguistics to speech pathologist to be a speech pathologist. That's how I learned about the field more specifically. That's great. You never know where these things are going to lead you, right? Right. <laughs> All right. So where did you work early in your career? Initially, when I did my clinical fellowship, I worked with adolescents and adults with the developmental delays for about one year. And then I tried to change my setting to more outpatient clinics. Initially, it was kind of difficult. I get to... I got to work with pediatric populations more than I wanted, and it was very limited in terms of work, working with adults. And I had to move to a couple of different outpatient clinics so that I was able to actually work with adult populations that I was interested in. Well, that's great. Well, your persistence paid off. <laughs> Thank you. So what led you to change directions and decide to open a private practice? Well, like you introduced in my um, bio, I earned my master's and doctorate uh, from Kent State University, and I pursued a long career goal with a PhD. And then I, at some point, I decided, well, why well, I actually need to change my direction now. It was kind of getting a little behind. So I wanted to change to do something that I can actually accomplish and make myself a little bit happier. Oh, that's great. I really appreciate the handout that you provided for us about starting a private practice and especially that graphic organizer, the concept mm -hmm. map <laughs> on the third page. So for those of you who are listening through speechtherapypd.com, be sure to check out that handout. And for anyone who's listening on another podcast, Hyunju has generously said that she would provide that handout for you if you contact her at info at chungspeechtherapy.com. Thank you. Okay. So you clearly described the steps that you took. And although their requirements can vary state by state, the handout really provides an excellent outline. So our objective of this episode is to share your experience and talk about the steps that were required for you, which will be similar for listeners, but those will vary according to what type of private practice and the state and county requirements. So we just kind of wanted to say that disclaimer to 
tell everyone that these are steps that were taken, but everyone's steps, everyone's journey may be a little bit different. That's right. So initially, because this was not the field that I planned ahead, you know, it just happened after I decided to change the direction. It was very difficult to find the essential information that I need to have to take steps to make this happen, right? So I Googled a lot and I tried to read somebody's articles or I tried to listen to lots of podcasts, but I just wanted to have a little more concrete information, like some written information, references, you know, things like that. So I began reading one of the websites that I list in the resources, which was smallbusinessadministration.gov. So it's a U.S. Uh, small business website. So it gives a lot of good information about basic concepts of a business, business structure and running your business and also, also growing your business. So it's a good you know, resource that you can actually find from the resources. And there are a couple of other links that I also included. Reading that website, I think I was able to understand the whole process a little bit better. Although I was interested in just uh, having small private practice as a sole uh, proprietorship, but it was good to know a little bit more about the whole you know, concept. Well, that's great. So really, before we go into the steps, the first recommendation is just to educate yourself about owning a small business. And also, Asia website has a lot of great information. There's a private practice section, practice management section that you can find some information on Asia. And also, when you join special interest groups, you can also get lots of information. And there's an Asia community, which is community.asia.org. Gives you a lot of information about, you know, the sources that you can actually use to network with the people, you know, other clinicians and other practice, you know, management. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So educate, use ASHA, use Google, use your resources, and the U.S. Small Business Administration is one that you also highly recommend. Great. So the very first step is to decide on a name and a business structure. So why did you decide to establish your business as a sole proprietor versus LLC? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to, well, I think in the beginning, I wasn't sure about, you know, many things. I wasn't sure whether this plan is going to work out good, whether I'm going to be able to run this kind of business, you know, myself okay. I wasn't sure how much I was prepared, how much prepared I was. So I just wanted to start small and test myself. So that's why I didn't have to go through lots of steps. I didn't have to file a lot of paperwork. It's very simple to just to register your business name with a county that you actually uh, operate your business. So that's why I decided, well, I'm going to start with this and then 
see what happens and see what happens and it's worked. So that was great. Okay. So you are, it is technically a sole proprietor. Okay. So the next thing you did was get a taxpayer identification number. So what was your process to obtain an employer identification number for your business? And the abbreviation for that is EIN. Right. So when I went to the county's office to register my business, so you first you have to have your business name and you decide on structure, you know, what structure, what business structure you're going to have. So just like you said, in my case, it was a sole proprietor. And I learned that I all I had to do was I need to find out whether the name that I'm thinking of is available for my business. If somebody is already, you know, taken the name, Chung speech and swallowing therapy probably <laughs> would not have been. But I, but still, yeah, but I still looked. <laughs> so there's a website. <laughs> I know when we were trying to find a name for this podcast, that was no small feat. We had oh. to search because there were so many speech names already taken. So we had a lot of fun and a lot of brainstorming before we came up for with with keys for SLPs. So Right. So let's say if I think it's still good to go to the Secretary of State of your state to look for, you know, some information as well as to check if it, the name that you're thinking of is available. And then my case, because I had to just register my name, business name with a county, I checked with a county again to make sure the name is available for me. <laughs> and then when I went there, it was pretty simple. You know, I already printed out, you know, fillable PDF file with a with the basic information, uh, address of the business, your name, so you're the owner of the business, um, just basic information. And then the county clerk will review, just to check, and then sign and put the stamp on, and the business certificate is executed at the moment. So I am the owner of Chung Speech and Swallowing Therapy at the moment. Uh, and well, when I came home, yeah. <laughs> so when I came home that night, I felt like, oh my God, this is done. Now I can apply for my tax identification number. We do all have you know, social security number, right? So that's your tax identification number for your own you know, asset. For your personal life. Yeah. Your personal assets. Right. You can, I hear you can still use your social security number for the small, you know, private practice, like, you know, sole proprietor, but there's a risk involved. You know, you don't want to put your social security number on the paper that you have to give out to the clients. So I think most of, you know, business owners will go for, you know, employer identification uh, number, which is EIN number is one type of text identification number, such as, you know, social security number. So you can just apply. You just go to IRS website and find a, a button for EIN and application, and you can just do fill out the paper, uh, fill out the information, and then you will get, as soon as you submit, you will get pretty quickly, you will get an email with a PDF showing your EIN number. 
Okay. That's it. <laughs> right? And then you need that to establish a business bank account. Right. So business banking account is not given to just the ind- individual who don't have a business, right? So you have to bring your business certificate. Uh, for me, it was DBA. So do business as assumed name. That's not legal business name because my sole proprietorship is considered not to be separate from me. So it's kind of same, you know, it's my own thing, right? So so I had to bring that certificate and then EIN paper to to get my banking account, the business banking account. Okay. And was there anything, did you learn anything new or special about opening your business bank account? Or is it is the process pretty similar to, besides the required paperwork, is it similar to creating your own personal bank account? It was pretty simple, but I think it was really, um, it was really important for me to have that so that I can use that to be reimbursed. So when I make a claim with the insurance or Medicare, they can use that banking information to some electronic transfer. So they don't have to mail out the checks all the time. They can just do, if I, if I apply for the electric transfer requested, then they can use that information to just send the money to the banking so that it's, it's in my account after that. So that's great. You get paid and the process is streamlined and everyone's happy, right? Right. (laughs) Okay. Once you established your business name, obtained your business employer identification number or EIN and opened your bank account, then you needed to obtain a national provider identification number, NPI. So can you tell us what an NPI is? So MPI is a National Provider Identification Number, which is the national provider number for all the providers who are covered by HIPAA. So you can think about your doctors, you know, physicians, physical therapists, occupational therapists, they all should have MPI number. If you are interested in working with the patients through the insurances, and even if you're not interested in working with the patients through the insurances, you have to provide your MPIs so that the clients, if they are interested in claiming, submitting the claims by themselves and get reimbursed. If you say, well, I don't want to do insurance work. I, I'm just a private pay. But still, you have to provide information about your services identified by this MPI number. Okay. Okay. So if I'm in private practice and I've decided I'm not going to accept any insurance, I still need this NPI number because I might have a client who wants to take that bill and submit it to the insurance and that NPI number is required. It's, I think it is a must, you know, it's very rare that you're going to work with a hundred percent clients who have no insurances and no interest in, you know, you know, getting reimbursed through the insurance by themselves. So it's good to have any, I think you should have. <laughs> okay. Okay. And along those lines, you also obtained professional liability insurance, which is good to have and probably a must to have. Right. Because 
you never know. I mean, we try to follow through all the ethics and important things based on the year license. Um, but it's difficult sometimes if you have to protect yourself from possible lawsuits, you know, you should have some kind of coverage, right? So that's what uh, professional liability insurance is for. Excellent. Which is a little bit different or actually very different from general liability insurance. So can you tell us about general liability insurance versus the professional liability insurance? So professional liability insurance covers more clinical work, your services as a speech pathologist, the area that you're licensed for. So it's your professional liability insurance. General liability insurance is applies to the physical location. So like things that can happen to the physical location. For example, there could be some kind of accident and injuries involved at the location that you're working with the clients, or maybe you you lose your assets, you know, maybe some kind of damage to the building or office, your furniture or any like a medical equipment kind of thing. So that insurance, general liability insurance covers that. So that's totally different. So it's a two different sets, you know, of insurance that you should have for your business. If you have physical location, if you do not have physical location, you should have just a professional liability insurance. You don't need a physical general liability insurance. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for that clarification. Okay. There, there are lots of steps to jump through, lots of hoops to jump through, right? Right. Okay. So then the next step was to get a business license or a permit. Oh, yeah. That is actually something that I don't know much about because in Texas, I didn't have to have a business license. You remember that we initially talked about the business name and structure, and I went to the county's office for my sole proprietor proprietorship. That is business certificate, like you kind of register your business. If it was not sole proprietor, if it was like limited liability company like LLC, you probably file your business information with the secretary of state of your state, right? So that's business certificate. But now we're talking about some states require business license to provide a certain services or sell products, which I was not involved in. So, okay. yeah, I don't <laughs> know too much about it. Have, <laughs> mention because this is a, you know, national podcast. So as we said, every state is different and some states may require that. Okay. So then the next step for you was credentialing for insurance. And what does credentialing for insurance mean? So you have your business certificate, you have a tax ID, and then you have MPI number identified, identifying your business with. Now you need to let insurances and network know that you are interested in working with the clients with their, you know, with their insurances or in their network. So 
to, I mean, as a way to let them know that you exist here as a provider or business, you have to give your information out to them, right? So CAQH is for Council for Affordable Quality Health Care. So it's like a database of all, like many clinicians' credentials. So when you need to apply for that, what you need to do, you just go to the website that I listed in the resources and you have to fill out a lot of information. It's almost like a little bit more than your resume. Oh, no. (laughs) So the first part was like your work history, you know, from, you know, whatever year. Uh, So 2001 to 2003, I worked for, you know, whatever company, you know, that kind of all work history information. Okay. And then your business information, location, contact information, and your EIN number and your MPI number. So everything you already have done needs to be entered to the system to let them know that you're here as a business, you know, owner okay. and a, or individual provider who is interested in working with the clients with the insurance or through the network. Okay. So this would be, would be the same process for any medical provider. Right. I think now, I don't know when it started, but now it's more like a very beginnings, you know, step of getting contracted with insurances. They, when you, when you're interested in working with a particular insurance, commercial insurance, and you go to their website and read about how to join their network, the first thing they're going to list will be credential with the CAQH. So you need to have that done. Okay. As soon as you can. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And then once you've done that, then you had to go to the individual insurances that you would like to be part of their networks. Right. Initially, I thought once I put all the information, you know, the long, you know, data (laughs) entry, I thought they would approach me, but actually not. (laughs) But there were cases. I heard of some colleagues, they were contacted by particular insurance um, representative, you know, just asking for, do you want to join <laughs> our network? You know, something really? like that. But yeah, I think that happens. It's not like, in, you know, zero. It's, it happens. But most of the time that you decide which insurances you are interested in, I think what you need to do is just for your local community, you know, state or counties or cities, you can Google what is most popular insurances, or you can go to some big company, you know, corporate companies and see what kind of insurance they offer. So you kind of, you can get some information about which insurances are fairly, you know, popular. Yeah, that's a good idea. Right. If, you, if you had a bit, you know, some big right. corporations in your area, you would definitely right. want to be in right. their networks. And you can also check um, what kind of insurance are accepted with your competitors, you know, the other speech pathology clinics, you know. My case, I actually, when I knew which doctors I wanted to work with, I go to their website and see what kind of insurance they accept. And I think See, that you're helps. so smart. <laughs> <laughs> I think that helps. And sometimes you get to hear really good tips from the doctors. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. So you decided to be part of two insurance companies, did you say? Two networks? For me, I just applied for one and I was uh, contracted with, yeah. 
And then I actually apply for one network, which is not an insurance company, but, you know, they have like a huge network. So they are not payers, but they give out the network to the insurances. So insurances will get to pay if clients are, you know, sent, sent to me and if I work with them. But it's, it's a little different. It's a network versus, you know, insurance payer. So it was a little okay. bit different. Okay. Okay. And then you decided to be a provider for Medicare Part B. Right. Because I'm more adult-focused clinician. I wanted to work with adults. So, you know, you hear that you cannot see Medicare-eligible clients as a private pay client. If they are Medicare-eligible you cannot see them. You need to be enrolled as a Medicare Part B provider. So that oh, was a big okay. thing. And then, you know, the age group that I'm, you know, targeting is just 60, probably, you know, 65 or, you know, over. So I decided, well, I need to be enrolled as a provider. So I applied to be a Part B provider, which which is pretty simple. It just takes a little time to enter all the information, but you already took the steps to follow. You have your business certificate, you have your EIN number, MPI number. So everything is already, you know, prepared for you. So you just need to list all the things. This time you don't have to enter so much work history. It's more like your business information. (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, supporting documents you have to attach together if you apply online. And you can apply with the paperwork as well. You can send out, you know, you can mail out the paper application. But I, I recommend applying online, which is faster. And it's like a good basic work that you do. And later on, if you need to update the information, it's a lot easier for you to update online because you already began entering all the information and it stays there. You already attach, you know, some PDF files for your EIN number, your banking information, all that. So it's already there. So I think it's a lot easier and faster uh, applying online. And that's the link that I included um, uh, in the resources. Okay. And so what is, what does P-E-C-O-S stand for related to Medicare? Right. Provider Enrollment Chain and Ownership System. It's a fancy. (laughs) A fancy government word, right? (laughs) Right. It's it's hard to remember all of them. Just people go by like a Picos, but, you know, when you try to think about what, what it stands for, <laughs> kind of hard. And so does so does that mean that you are now, once you were approved, you are now part of the PECOS, the Provider Enrollment Chain Ownership System? I think it's just, yeah, it's a government and national provider, yeah, provider system. And then you will get your PTAN number. Another number. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what is a PTAN number? PTAN number. Let's see if I can remember that. (laughs) It's a provider transaction access number. So you have MPI number. That's, you know, provider identification number with the Medicare. 
So you don't get to use a PTAN on your paperwork, you know, like when you do plan of care for doctors, you don't have to include, you don't get to include PTAN number. You always include the MPI number because that, that's the number that you're identified with. But PTAN number is used when you call them, when you call Medicare, um, your local Medicare to ask about like, oh, what is the claim status? You know, where's my check? Is it coming? Oh, you know, that okay, kind of, okay. yeah. So when you want to ask about uh, specific services that you provided, you know, they will ask you to give PTAN number two as a check for, you know, authentication. If it, you know, if you are the person who is actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that is a, those are, that's a lot of information, a lot of steps that you had to go through. Do you remember how many months like that whole process took? Well, once I started with my business certificate, you know, going through the name and then decide on the sole proprietor from that point, once, I mean, once I got that, it didn't take too much time. The reason that I was interested in talking about it was the time that I spent before that, you know, until then, because I didn't know enough. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I tried to, you know, make it out, like I tried to understand. I think it took longer than actually, you know, the time they use, you begin taking steps, you know, your business certificate and EIN number and all the, you know, applications. I would say... Maybe like a, maybe a month and yeah. And Medicare, I think the Medicare application went through within, within like a three to four weeks, you know, after applying online. So it wasn't too bad. And uh, CAQH was not taking too long either. And EIN is like a, just instantly you get a, you know, response email with the PDF with your EIN number. So once you know what to do, it's not taking a lot of time. But I think, you know, we analyze, you know, is it going to work? Am I right? Where is the reference? That was my struggle. That's why I wanted to talk about this. And there always, there are people who are so good at knowing this kind of, you know, things like with a good understanding of, you know, business. You know, maybe have friends or family members who who own businesses. It's easier for them. And they may have like attorneys, you know, lawyers in the family. Much easier to to have good access to this kind of information and understanding better. But for me, it was just a struggle. I had no business mind (laughs) whatsoever. (laughs) That's why I tried to kind of list the step-by-step what do you have to do first and then next that way you feel more secure and then motivated you know take steps and get things done well thank you for providing that information for our listeners and the way that you designed that map it doesn't seem so overwhelming so you really broke things down to help your fellow SLPs so Thank you for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) Now, you didn't open your doors right away. You did a few more things before you started scheduling clients. So let's talk about that. So what other steps did you take before scheduling clients? 
I think right after I got the business certificate with my business name and then the the assumed name, like a DBA, I worked on a website. I had to buy a domain name. So like a Chung speech, I made it a little shorter than the business name. So it was chungspeechtherapy.com. That's my domain name. So after you got that, then you can work on creating your own website. And there are lots of templates available when you join the one of the websites um, that you can create your own website. So that was something that I did. And your business card, creating brochures, some marketing things you have to do. Then you have to decide how you're going to accept payments from clients. Actually, if so far, I haven't accepted any <laughs> payments from clients because of my all of my uh, clients were Medicare patients and they had a supplementer. So Medicare pays and then the secondary insurance pays the rest. So I actually didn't have to, so far, I didn't have to actually collect any, but you should have the, the payment method ready. So if you have to take a you know, payment from the clients, you okay. can do that. Okay. All right. And um, how about your clinical forms? Did you create your own or did you use an outside resource for those? For that, I joined one of the Facebook groups, you know, for private practice. There are good ones, you know, you can even Google or you can go to Facebook and search what, what kind of groups, private practice groups available. So actually I bought like a set of clinical forms that were made by somebody else. So like a template. And then you can edit and just revise, you know, include things that you wanted to include. But it's good to know what kind of things you have, what kind of documents you have to have covered. And then you needed to decide whether or not you were going to be doing teletherapy. So are you doing teletherapy currently? I have I have the setup available. I mean, setup is done, but I don't have teletherapy clients right now. I get to see all the in-person, you know. <laughs> well, that's nice. <laughs> but I All wanted right. to do. I was excited getting okay. My first therapy, you know, client. But then when I did my evaluation at home, the client decided, well, I I can do you know in person. <laughs> they prefer that. <laughs> uh, there are advantages of both formats. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so. Let's go back to your website a little bit. So you got your domain name and what did you use to create your website? I went for uh, Squarespace, but there are other ones like Wix.com, right? So there are many of them, WordPress. I think there's a pros and cons, you know, you just need to kind of feel for it. But when I looked at other speech therapists, website or clinic's website, sometimes it shows at the end of the page, it shows made with or made by Squarespace or Wix.com. So I kind of like the layout, looks very professional. Yeah. So that's why I went with that. Okay. Okay. Now you registered with Google My Business even before you actually had a physical space. And how does that work? 
I learned somebody did, you know, register their business through Google My Business. I learned that from one of the Facebooks. And then I actually listened to a short webinar. And there, there I learned that I can do that, you know, free. Free is good yeah. when you're starting your and then, business. Like, she went through the step-by-step. It's not that difficult at all. You just to create your profile. So you have to have your business name, which you have, and you have address. That time, since I didn't have physical location in the beginning, they allow you to enter zip code or you can enter uh, county, different county. You can pick as many as you you are <laughs> actually operating your business in or cities. You can pick cities as well and as, you know, just you know, select that as service areas. But if okay. you have physical location, that location will show on the map. <laughs> okay, okay. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, that is exciting. So have you gotten referrals through Google? Well, I mean, I don't know. How, I don't know. I can say it's through Google, but I mean, people find me through Google. So I think that works, you know. I didn't ask specifically was it showing on the Googles or what did you just Google? <laughs> did you just mm-hmm. Google and on my website, the shows, you know, who knows? It takes time until, you know, it shows. But Google usually, you know, shows the local businesses first, right? So like a speech therapy near me, if you Google that way or a speech therapist in Carrollton, Texas, then they'll use the person's zip code, right? So the person's location, so they'll list the ones that are very close to them first. So there's advantage of using Google until the, you, your, your website or your business gets popular mm-hmm. and you may show and you know, something is working for you, then that's better. But until then, I think Google My Business helped. You know, The first client that I had was um, she specifically Googled Korean-speaking speech therapist and actually she she had her parents living not in Texas a different state but they were visiting her and then and then they had to receive some therapy you know okay so it was like a, it was not even their permanent residence you know they were just uh, traveling but Medicare patients you can still see you know although their Medicare was you know probably in uh, different state, but you okay. can still see them, you know. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you already, yeah. Wherever they go, you you know, they can have, you know, speech therapy with a Medicare Part B uh, clinician. Well, and that kind of leads into you decided to specialize. You will see people speaking English, but you specialize in patients who are speaking Korean as their primary language. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. When I work at many different hospitals, always I get to see few, you know, Korean-speaking clients or patients at hospitals. But I didn't work with a lot of adult Korean clients. But then when I saw them at the hospitals, I just realized, well, it's very, very important for them to have a quality therapy. And sometimes it's very challenging without the clinician speaking the same language, particularly when they have so much aphasia and maybe sometimes mixed with apraxia. It's 
even difficult to assess, you know, what their impairments are and how you're going to help them. So since I'm having my business, it's a little bit more flexible for me to decide what types of clients, you know, what population I want to work with. I want to be known for this population kind of thing, you know, for my business. So I decided it's it's my responsibility somehow, you know, I can help them a little bit better than other clinicians who may not be speaking Korean. And I think it's important. Yes. So how did you market yourself as a Korean speaking speech language pathologist in a private practice? I think the first thing I did was I Google Korean speaking, physical therapists, physicians, you cannot get too many. <laughs> Maybe just a few names. <laughs> and then I visit I I made a list of some uh, Korean doctors or you know just looking like a Korean name. <laughs> I list them and just Google a little more and read their reviews and I you can see oh this doctor may be a good fit with me. This doctor sees a lot of clients with some like a neurological impairment or you know after stroke. Then I made a list and give them a call and say that well this is so and so I'd like to introduce myself and my business can I stop by with a business card and brochure, you know, a box of candies or something? So I visited a few and then some physical therapy clinic I visited as well. Not, I'm not too limited to just Korean speaking, but I don't know. It, it may be a little bit of a cultural thing, but some, I know some clients, may need a lot more therapy than they think, you know, or they are, that are available. So I kind of wanted to go out and just to let them know I'm available in the community. And I know that there are only few in my locality even. So I just wanted to let them know. And then you kind of work on your website. You try to include the keywords, you know, so that your so that the search engine will just pick up the keywords, you know, key terms, so that when they Google your website may show, you know, with that keywords that they use when they're Googling. So that's something that I did as well. Okay. Okay. Great. So you recognize there was really a need for Korean-speaking speech-language pathologists, especially with those with aphasia, and that as far as cultural considerations go, that some patients with aphasia might not be advocating for themselves? Right. I mean, if they are just living alone, maybe just a couple, you know, is living alone, it's a it's a challenge too, but even with the family, sometimes it's difficult because the family members are all different in terms of how fluent they are in Korean, you know, whether they speak Korean or understand Korean. So depending on the family dynamics, they may, they are very different, you know, in terms of what's available for them to actually practice with. In Korea, now there's a lot more speech pathologists working with adult populations, you know, after stroke or, you know, any kind of neurological impairments. But I'm working with clients who are now 
60 and over, and when they came to the United States, when they lived in Korea, I don't think they, you know, they had much experience or knowing about what speech pathologists do in terms of just the basic concept of rehabilitation, you know, therapy, what they can do and what, what kind of work is expected for them to improve their impairments. So I think that that it sometimes interferes with how much they're motivated, you know, how, how much participation you can get out of them. So you have to work with the family members, try to educate them and try to make them feel comfortable, but then try to explain the benefit of the therapy, how it works, and uh, what kind of outcomes you expect. You have to educate and train them so that they will work with you. If you know, somebody with aphasia and apraxia are kind of not even attempting to say something with errors. It's just very difficult to assess. You know, there's one client that I saw recently, based on what the family said on the phone, I initially thought there's a lot of apraxia part because what I was hearing was try the patient is trying to say but cannot really say or often doesn't want to say. But when I really saw the client in person, it was a part of it, but it was more personality and, you know, the pressure that she has, you know, she doesn't want to be like a burden to the, you know, her children. She doesn't want to make a mistake. And her errors were like uh, some phonological errors. Like you hear like fronting errors, you know, like say D for good sound and T, okay. that kind of errors. So it sounds like, you know, a little like a pediatric sound errors. So she felt like ashamed. I think, you know, when I asked her, so what is it really kind of keeping you from saying a little bit more and trying a little bit more? I asked her in Korean and she said a pronunciation. Yeah. Because she doesn't like the way she sounded. But initially, I thought she had more issues with the word retrieval or apraxia. But actually, it was her, you know, perception of her own errors. And she didn't want to look not smart, you know, (laughs) or sound a little different. That was hard for her to accept in practice. So that was interfering her with the progress. So... I had to educate her a little bit more in terms of, you know, how she is progressing and what kind of things she's good at so that she, I can motivate her a little bit more. She got much, much better soon. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, good. she was opening up next session so much. And then the family said, well, she began talking a lot. It's like, wow, really? Like it's just the two sessions after. <laughs> so she felt more comfortable. She can make those errors. And then she began making correct pronunciations. So she felt probably less pressured and feeling a little bit more confident and doing a little bit better. So you got to see the person first, you know, right? So you have to, you have to establish the rapport first so that they can open up and you can see a little bit more, you know, cultural or linguistics aspects of their impairments. Exactly. Well, how rewarding for her to make that progress and for the family Mm -hmm. um, after two sessions and for you as a, as a new sole proprietor, (laughs) (laughs) not a new therapist, but a, a new private practice owner. If you had not been there in the home, you know, who knows what would have happened. So 
good work. Thank you. Yeah, she's actually coming like forty-five minutes away. So, because she cannot find anyone closer, <laughs> right? So it was like I, I felt bad that she had to, you know, come so far away. But the family members are, you know, very supportive, and they're driving her forty-five minutes. <laughs> well, you know, way. that just shows the progress that she's making in the rapport mm-hmm. that you have established with her because she's willing to make that drive to see you because yeah. it's working. So that's good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's good to yeah. see. That That is good to see. So any other success stories of any clients in your private practice so far that you would like to share? I saw, actually, I still see the client. I have actually one session left <laughs> that I plan to discharge the client in next week. Initially, he was actually recommended for PEC tube placement. MPO, you need to get a P, uh, the PEC for tube feeding, but the client was not interested in having it done because I, he felt like he can actually swallow a little better. You know, he can make some improvement. So I began working with him and he's actually making a lot of progress. So they decided not to have a pack and he's doing really good. He's eating. <laughs> yeah, it's actually very, yeah, very, very rewarding. I mean, I think he worked hard. I worked hard. The family was working hard to support him. and he. What was his diagnosis that led him to have a swallowing disorder? I think it's a combination of a Parkinson's and also some GI issues. So I think it was a combination. I think the GI condition, like gastritis and ulcer and some constipation were also like negatively you know, affecting his swallowing or digesting. But when I saw him first time, like, he was like clearing through every single bite and said, but when I reviewed his MBS, I could see the hope. Okay, he can, he can improve this. So why don't we just give him like a month or a few, few weeks to work on swallowing exercise and, you know, pure trials so that he doesn't have to make, you know, just decision to have, you know, pack in place because that's not what he wanted to do. And that worked and he went to, you know, another place to get assessed for like more instrumental assessment and he was doing much, much better. So now he's pretty happy about, you know, what he's eating. Last Yesterday I saw him eating regular food and one time he coughed because he was taking too big bite. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, but overall outcome was really good. I was actually driving more than a little farther than my usual, you know, radius. Because I usually say 25 miles from office location because now I have office. But I I offered that I drive to him because I knew his condition. I knew that he's going to cancel <laughs> if he doesn't feel well. You know, he has a fatigue, you know, because of a Parkinson's. 
But I think it worked pretty good. There are some clients like that who really appreciate you driving. You don't have to do that for all the clients, but some clients I like to, you know, offer them me driving versus, you know, they come to me because right now I'm not that crazy busy. So I can offer the time. (laughs) Well, that's great. Are you allowed in a private practice with Medicare patients to have a trip charge or is is, is Mm, that not allowable? Yeah. Yeah, Medicare patients, no. But if it's a private, depending on the contract, I guess with the commercial insurances, you know, depending on what it says in the contract, if it's like a purely private pay clients with no insurances involved, probably you can set it as your your business agreement, then you can do that, but not with a Medicare patient. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience today? Like I said, I want, you know, the beginning clinicians to be more open to thinking about private practice in the future. When you really had to do this, sometimes you get very overwhelmed, you know, just like I was. (laughs) (laughs) That's sometimes it's a little bit more difficult. But throughout your career, or even in the beginning stage of your career, you can you can think about, well, there's a good possibility that I may be able to do private practice. And you begin learning about, you know, basic things. You actually collect some information and do little things, you know, toward your private practice, you know, saving some money, maybe creating your clinical forms yourself, you know, all the things that you can do. And then when it's time, you will be more organized. You know how much prepared you are and, and then you're good to go. You can take steps and just get things happen. Well, thank you for sharing your experience. And thank you for designating all those steps on the handout and the graphic organizer. And in this podcast, it really helps clarify for people who are interested in starting a private practice now or just planting the seeds to start one later. So I really appreciate it. It was great working with you and hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to talk. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.